Thank you, Secretary. And <laughs> let me give you the backstory of John if you haven't been here or if you're new to the Zoom thing. Um, this is the Gospel of John, and we're about four or five months from the cross. It's toward the end of his um, ministry on earth. He's still teaching at the temple very boldly, even though they're trying to kill him. They want to kill the Lord Jesus, the religious leaders. They absolutely hate him. We'll get into that tonight a lot. Um, we talked about that. So he's, he's been making some bold and very amazing statements about who and what he is. Tonight, it's going to be mostly in chapter eight, a dialogue or even a debate between Jesus and the religious leaders going back and forth and back and forth. Then he's going to turn and talk to some people that say they're believers. And we're going to find out how deep their faith is, and it's not that deep. Um, so who he is is still the main focus of this chapter and the whole gospel of John, as we've been saying. Um, I wrote in the email that you got kind of as a goofy thing to get you to open it. It says, who's your daddy? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Whose father uh, is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ's father, sorry, and who is the father of these enemies of Christ? That's the kind of the surprising thing. So anyway, let's dive in. So I know you're awake. Those of you that are here and on Zoom, say amen. So I know you're awake. Oh, that was good. And those of you on Zoom, I see you waving and your mouth's moving. By the way, on Zoom, there's um, 58 screens, so maybe 80 or 90 people, and you're muted because there's so much background noise. If I unmuted you, you'd be shocked how much noise there is. Anyway, let's get to the noise of the Bible study, shall we? Let's pick it up in chapter eight. Um, pick it up in verse 23, just to give you the context of where we are. He's talking to these enemies of his, the, the religious leaders. So 823, but he continued, you are from below. I am from above. There's a lot of contrasts in this chapter, and that's one of them. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins uh, if you do not believe that I am. NIV has the one I claim to be. It's I am, which is the divine name of God, Exodus 3. I think it's verse 14. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins, meaning what you believe about Jesus determines your eternal um, dwelling place, where you're going to spend eternity. And it's all about believing who he is, I am, God, and that he died on the sins for your cross. If you think he's a great teacher and he died for your sins on the cross, you're out of luck because a great teacher is a human being who is sinful, and his death would mean nothing for you. Jesus is the sinless one. We're going to see that tonight as well. Verse 25, who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. That's God the Father. What, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. He's saying my words are the words of God himself. Um, we covered all this last week. I'm just trying to review here. They did not understand he was telling them about his father, God, the father. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am uh, and that I do nothing of my own, on my own, sorry, but speak just what the father has taught me. 
When you've lifted up the son of man, now that, that word can be used for exaltation. We lift you up, Lord. We exalt you. It's the same kind of word, but he doesn't mean exaltation as much as he sees the cross where he's nailed to a cross beam, and then they would attach it to the post and lift him up. He sees that as his exaltation. But he's, what he's saying there is when you see that happen, the crucifixion, you'll know that I am, that I'm God. So we talked just at the end of last week's Bible study about what that means. One of the things is that death, he's not saying, first of all, that every single person that saw the crucifixion believed. Many of the Pharisees were there and just shook their heads and said, see, um, he's not who he claimed to be. But while he was on the cross, there was darkness, supernatural darkness at uh, midday. Do you remember that? For three hours while he's on the cross. Not an eclipse. We know that because we know it was a Passover. Wasn't an eclipse. Supernatural darkness. The, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom when he dies on the cross. Also supernatural. We also, we didn't mention it last week, there was an earthquake. Matthew, uh, I think it's chapter 27, I could be wrong, has a weird verse that isn't mentioned elsewhere, that when he died, the souls of some people that had passed away who were believers, they rose out of the grave and appeared to people in the city. So there's another miraculous thing that happened. But the big one is none of those things. It's that he rose from the dead three days later. And not all, but a lot who were listening to him, that was enough for them. They believed after that. Um, so again, there's the I am. Um, that goes back to Exodus 3. I, I, thought, I think it's verse 14, where Moses is talking to the burning bush. Remember, God's talking through the burning bush. And Moses said, if I'm going to talk to the, your people, Israel, who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, you should tell them, I am that I am is my name. You will tell them, I am sent you. I am. Ego eimi in Greek is the exact wording in the Greek translation of the New Testament, which is what they would be reading at that time. Greek was the street language of the day. Ego eimi, I am, means I have self-existence. I am not someone that got his life from my parents. I have existed for all eternity in the past. He's saying, God says that's his name. Jesus claims the same name. Before this chapter is over, he's going to say it in such a way that's going to really make steam come out of their, their ears. But for now, let's keep rolling. The one, verse 29, who sent me is with me. That's God the Father. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. This is a claim to sinlessness. None of us would be bold enough, would we, to say, oh, God, the, the Bible, yeah, I always do what pleases God. If I ever say that, throw something at me, please, because I don't, and neither do you. He can say it. Um, he always does what pleases God, absolutely in tune with the Father. There's nothing on which the Son and the Father disagree. Even as he spoke, verse 30, Many put their faith in him. Now, that's a glimmer of hope there that a lot of these people are listening and arguing with them, the religious leaders, but there are some who hear and believe. And you and I look at that and go, well, see, that's just like spreading the gospel. Some people believe, most don't. 
right? The majority of planet Earth is not Christian. Christianity is the largest religion in the world, a little over 2 billion Christians, if you believe the numbers. But there we have seven plus billion people, maybe up to eight now, I don't know, on planet Earth. We are the largest religion, and yet we're a minority. Uh, narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to, dis to destruction, Jesus says in Matthew. Many there are who find it. So this looks like a little bit of a glimmer of hope, but it's not that bright of a glimmer I'm about to show you. Many put their faith in him. Many believed. Because now he's going to turn and address the ones who say they believe. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my word, another way to put it, you are really my disciples. He's going to give them the qualifications or the evidences that prove someone is truly a believer. So the first one he gives is, if you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my word, if you absolutely hold on to it, what that implies is, if I say here, these are my keys, could you hold on to them? And I see you a month later and you say, I, I don't know where I put them. You didn't hold on to them, right? Or if you say, you know, in the parking lot, I dropped them and I ran over them with the car. I, I don't have them anymore. You didn't hold it. Part of being a Christian and an evidence that we are saved is that we come to faith in Jesus and we stay as believers. I'm not saying we never sin. I'm not saying we don't have moments of doubt or moments where we slip or backslide. I'm saying we always come back to God. We hold his word. This also has to do with obedience, not only holding the word, meaning hearing it and understanding it, but holding it as being a, uh, at home with it and in it, that we obey it, and it becomes our sort of constitution for life, if you will. So that first thing he says in 31 is, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Remember in chapter six, there was a bunch of people that called themselves disciples. And oddly enough, in chapter six, verse 66, yes, that's 666, make of it what you want. In that verse, it's where in that chapter, because he said, I'm the bread of life, you must eat my flesh, drink my blood, hard sayings, no doubt, a lot of people abandoned him who had said they were disciples. They no longer walked with him, that verse says. So holding to his teaching. This is a doctrine in Christian circles we call the perseverance of the saints. What it means is those that are truly saved persevere to the end. The sermon that I'm giving this Sunday, well, that's another little plug I meant to put in. This Sunday, if you're 10 a.m. here in Oakhurst, uh, come to Oakhurst Evangelical Free Church. They were completely out of options for the sermon. So that's why it's me this Sunday. Anyway, uh, the janitor wasn't available. So um, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. The perseverance of the saints is the idea that we who believe persevere to the end. The other side of that is God holds us in his hand and won't let us go. So is it us that we do we do it or does God do it? You'll have to come Sunday to hear the answer to that question. Okay, verse 32. So you hold to his teaching, then you're really my disciples, 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These people, we're going to find out, believe to a point, okay, to the point where they're comfortable, 
And a lot of people believe to a point. I believe in Jesus as a great moral teacher. He was a great example. He wasn't God, wasn't the Messiah, didn't rise from the dead, but great teaching. Is that enough to get you to heaven? No, you have to, you must believe that I am. He's saying you have to understand that I'm God in human flesh. So, um, by the way, in this passage, the word truth is mentioned seven times. Um, so that's sort of the formula, if you will. Keep in mind, these people heard the same words that the Pharisees heard, okay, that Jesus was teaching. Some of them heard it and went, no, not the guy, not that we got to kill this guy. Some other people heard the same words and believed in him. Charles Spurgeon, a theologian from the past, um, has a saying that the same hot sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Same sun, same message. The wax is softened by the message. The, the clay gets harder in the sun. Same thing with Jesus. Some people get the more they hear about him, the more they hate him. Others, the more they hear their hearts are softened. They come closer and closer to believing in him. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, so let's see. Yeah, we talked about that too. Oh, you know, let's take a brief detour to Ephesians chapter one. So from John, take a right, and we're going to go about, I'll say six books. That's a guess. Past Acts, Romans, and the two Corinthian books, past Galatians. Next book after Galatians is Ephesians chapter one. I said a minute ago that believers, when they believe, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside of us, third person of the Trinity, God living inside of believers. You with me so far? So the question is, I wish there was some sort of guarantee that he'd stay there and that I would make it to the end. You said about persevering, abiding in his word, holding his word. Um, so if you've turned to Ephesians and let's see, chapter one, pick it up in verse 13, talking to believers there. We were chosen in verse 11 predestined in verse 11, according to God's plan. Verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Here it comes. And you, that's believers, listen, that's you. Verse 13, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal or sealed by the Holy Spirit the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, what's the next word? Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That says the Holy Spirit doesn't just move in like in a hotel room and never unpack. He unpacks, he takes up residence inside of you and begins to convict you of sin, make the word become clearer, um, change your life from the inside out. Also part of the sermon this Sunday. There's another plug. Okay, let's go back to John now. Um, John, Jesus mentions in verse 32, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This statement, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, has been misused in libraries. It's posted all over the U.S. Meaning libraries are a place where there's books and there's knowledge. That's true right? But there's also some stuff that isn't true in there, right? Libraries use it as a general term for come to the knowledge of the, of the library and you'll get truth and the truth will set you free. Listen, 
In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the what? Truth. He is truth incarnate. He doesn't mean just knowledge out there, read the encyclopedia and science books. He means he is the truth in a, in a real tangible sense. Verse 32, then you will know the truth. You'll know the truth, listen, which is a person, but it's also a series of doctrines. You'll know the truth that he really is God. You know the truth that he died on the cross for your sins and mine, paid a debt you and I could never pay. You'll know the truth about yourself, and it's not pretty. You'll know the truth about yourself, that you're a sinner, and you can't possibly have saved yourself or been good enough where God owes you. And yet, Tim Keller used to say, the Bible teaches that you are far more wicked than you ever dared think, and yet you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. Beautiful. That God knows who you are and loves you anyway, because you're a work in progress, and so am I. So then you will know the truth, and that truth will do something. What will it do? Set you free. So you might ask the question, well, okay, set me free from what? I'm not a prisoner. The Bible teaches that everyone who sins is a slave of sin, because sin has an addictive nature to it. You can't stop sinning. Even if you think you can, you can't. So the truth setting you free, Jesus setting you free, free from ignorance about yourself, about God, about the Bible, free from slavery to sin, free from spiritual death, free from, I like this one, free from yourself, right? Because we can be slaves of ourselves in a sense. Um, also free from having hell and death hanging over your head, free from guilt, free indeed. Free, listen, to be able to now do things that please God, because in your unsaved state and mine, anything we did, whether we know it or not, it was for my glory or his glory, not God's glory. With the Holy Spirit living inside of us, knowing the truth, we can live in order to please God, which we never could do before. And we're sealed and guaranteed, we saw in first uh, in uh, Ephesians 1. So truth is not only a doctrine, it's a person. Every other religion is doctrine. Christianity has doctrine, but Christianity rests on the person of Jesus Christ. What did he say earlier? Unless you believe that I am, that I'm God, you're going to die in your sins. You'll have that guilt that you'll wear forever. It's a weird thing that this truth is so valuable, no money can buy it. No amount of work we do could make us earn it or deserve it. And um, no status in life can make us obtain it. It's a free gift, and yet it's the most valuable thing in the whole universe. Pretty amazing. Um, let's keep moving. Verse 32 You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These are people that are believers, he's saying this to, or at least so-called disciples, uh, we learned from verse uh, 30. Okay, keep reading 33. They answered him. Don't miss this. Who's the they, class? Goes back to verse 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. These are so-called disciples. We're going to see their faith is pretty shallow. Watch. Um, Let's see, 
Um, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him. These are the so-called disciples. We are Abraham's descendants or Abraham's seed. And we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? They're taking a little bit of offense at the statement that they're going to be set free. So they make this kind of ridiculous statement. We've never been slaves of anyone. Okay. Is that true? No, they're the slaves of the Romans as they're saying this. Rome has conquered Israel. They took over the country. They pay taxes to Rome. They do what Rome says. Over the centuries, the Jews were slaves to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Syrians, and the Romans. All conquered them, all enslaved them. They may mean, well, we're spiritually free because they mention Abraham. Did you see that? Abraham is the first Jew. You have to go all the way back into early in Genesis, where God speaks to Abraham. He is a Gentile at that point. Basically, there's no such thing as a Jew. And God calls Abraham. What the Bible says about Abraham, and by the way, if you read Genesis, you'll find out the guy was far from perfect. But the bottom line on Abraham is Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness, meaning God said, I know this is hard to believe, Abraham. I'm paraphrasing. I want you to leave your country, leave your family, take your wife and go to a land I'll show you. No travel brochure, no GPS. Where is it? What's the climate? Go. And I'll make you the father of a great nation. And Abraham, to his credit, goes. A few little side trips there and a few mistakes, but he believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. The Jews revered three people, King David, I would put in third place, Moses, number two, Abraham, number one. Abraham, the New Testament says, is the father of all the Jews and of all who believe. So spiritually, he is your and my Father, because we heard the gospel, we believed God, and it's credited to us as righteousness. Translation, faith is what saved Abraham and you and me. Okay, I'm on the wrong page. Let me get rid of that page. I don't know how that got in there. Um, okay, so Abraham is the father of all who will believe. Abraham was promised that one of his seeds, one of his descendants, would be the one through whom God would bless the whole world, not just the Jews, the whole world. It turns out that is Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. He's a Jewish male. Um, let's see. They, uh, the Jews had a saying, the rabbis had a saying, that Abraham sat at the gates of hell to make sure there was never a mistake and that no Jew would ever enter hell. Translation, the Jews believed, are you a son or daughter of Abraham? Are you Jewish? Yes. You already have your ticket to heaven. That's it. Your lineage, the fact that you're Jewish, you're a son or daughter of Abraham, you're in for free. And it wasn't true. Uh, because at this time, they had really gone off the deep end um, of theology and didn't really believe what God had said. They were going through the motions of the sacrifices, but they were really had become for the most part, a bunch of religious hypocrites. Um, so they are not, uh, 
understanding. They believe, remember, these are the people that supposedly believe. So they say, here's what I'm counting on for my salvation. I'm Abraham's descendant, verse 33. Never been slaves of anyone, which isn't true. How can you say we shall be set free? What do we need to be set free from is really what they're asking. Here's the answer. And in a kind of a veiled sense, verse 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Now, in the Greek, there's different tenses of the verbs. So if that verse worries you, don't worry about it. Because you sin, I sin still. We have a sin nature, right? We're saved, but we occasionally go our own way against God's will. That's not what he's talking about here. How do you know that, Joe? Because the tense of the verb is continuing habitual lifestyle action. Whoever sins as a way of life, whoever sins constantly, habitually, that person is a slave and can't stop sinning. The picture is of a slave who is owned by someone else. We're going to see that slaves of sin are owned by the devil, not by God. And their ancestry with Abraham is great. But if they don't act like Abraham, that's what the subject's going to be, then they're not going to be saved. They're resting on the fact that they're just plain Jews. They're, therefore, we're in. Um, yeah, the present participle, poion in Greek, means people who sin habitually. Sin, as we said, is addictive. Romans 6 talks about the fact that we've been set free from sin, and yet some people, although they've been set free, keep returning to the same sins. The analogy I like to give is imagine a slave that is chained to a 15-foot chain. And the chain is stuck in a, uh, there's a big pole stuck in the ground. And the guy's got a 15 foot radius that he can walk around. And this is his area. He's chained. He's a slave. Someone comes along and cuts the chain. But the guy's been a slave there for 30 years, let's say. And the guy says, you're free to go now. And he does. He leaves. But when nightfall comes and he's ready to go to sleep, he's so used to the old pattern of life, you find him sleeping by the pole. <clears throat> and you say, you know, you don't have to be here. I know, but this is, I'm so used to this habitual lifestyle. Even set free as Christians, we can return to old sins. We have to remember Jesus has severed that tie. We are now free to, listen, not sin. Where before we were only free to in that little 15-foot radius, choose our sins, not free to leave it all together, let alone serve God and, and worship him and what have you. Um, so he's going to use an analogy about slavery as well. Um, I'm just reading notes here. Um, and there's also going to be the difference between a slave and a son that's going to come up. Um, let's see. Um, verse 30. Four? Yeah. So they're asking, how can you say we can be set free? If every, I tell you the truth, that's verily, verily, I say unto you that whenever he says that, it means, listen up, this is really important. That's really what that means. Um, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, who lives habitually as a sinner. They can't stop. 
So what about the slavery, Jesus? Verse 35, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. He's contrasting a son of the living God versus a slave and the difference. In a household, there might be a father and a mother, and, and they're wealthy, and they have slaves. They own the slaves. But they also have, let's say, a few kids, a few sons and daughters. The sons and daughters had a much higher position than the slaves. If you were a slave, you could be sold or dismissed at any time. Not so with a son or a daughter. He's saying it's a much more privileged position to be God's son or daughter, which is what you and I are. So um, let's see. So no permanent place in the family as a slave, but a son belongs to it. Notice forever. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, and that's Jesus, he's talking about the ultimate son of God. If the son sets you free, remember the chain. If he cuts that chain of slavery to sin and to Satan and sets you free, you will be free indeed. Totally free. Now, does that mean um, some people are celebrating that they're free. Amen. It doesn't, does it mean this? Because in the 60s and 70s, in the era when I grew up, there was the hippie thing was the whole free, man, just to be a free lifestyle. Does that mean, does Jesus mean free in the sense of I can do whatever I want? No. Because then that would be, you'd be free to sin, free to get drunk, free to use drugs, free to steal. Is that freedom? He already said, if you have a habitual sin problem, you're a slave to that. So you are the least free person there is. So, but he does say here, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The reason is because he's God. You say, I don't see that connection. Here's why. As the perfect lamb of God, no sin, when he died, he can set you free from the slavery. That's the only way to cut that chain and get rid of that post. The only way. He paid for your debt. He basically ransomed you, bought you back. You were bought, sold into slavery, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden. He bought you back, and now you are free. But the paradox is you are now to follow and obey him. Oh, you say, wait a minute, I'm an old hippie. That doesn't sound that free to me. If the son makes you free, that's the freest you can be following Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has, God has things he wants you to do in your short lifetime, and you can't do them unless you're following Jesus. It's as if the chain has been cut, and now by following him, he will lead you where you're supposed to go. Where chained to the pole, you could never leave that sinful area. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free for reals, as we used to say when we were kids. Um, free not to sin, free from the curse of sin, free from death, free from sickness uh, eventually, free from selfishness, free to obey and do what God wants you to do, free to, listen to this, worship. Because as a slave to sin, you may have thought you were worshiping, but you were fooling yourself. Free indeed. Verse 37. I know 
you're Abraham's descendants. Okay, he means physically that they're in their lineage, their DNA, it would come up, oh, they're Jewish. Father and mother were Jewish. I know you're Abraham's descendants. I'm going to insert the word physically, biologically. But he's talking spiritually, isn't he? Watch. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, verse 37 still. Yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. You say, wait, it sounds like it came out of left field. Why is he bringing that up? Okay, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. These people, whether they know it or not, are listening to this carpenter from Nazareth who is God in a man's body. Therefore, when he speaks, it's God's word. They don't believe it. Abraham did. Okay, so they're not like Abraham, are they? But he's saying, I'll show you how different you are from Abraham. Abraham believed God. You not only don't believe my word and I am God, you want to kill me. That's about as far away from believing as you can get, right? It's not take it or leave the message. It's I want to kill this guy, these guys. Yet you want to, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. What's going on here? Do you remember earlier in this gospel, Jesus said, among other things, I am the bread of life. Remember that? I am the light of the world. From I am the living water, you know, all there's all these analogies he's giving. But he also talks about thirst. If you want the living water, you got to be thirsty. You want the living bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, you got to be hungry for it right? He says, you have no room for my word. Translation, we're not thirsty. We don't need anything spiritually. We're Abraham's kids. They're not hungry for the bread. That's why there's no room for Jesus's word. Jesus is not an addition to Judaism, like fries you can get. You want a burger? You want fries with that? It's like an add-on. Jesus is not an addition to Judaism. Listen, Jesus fulfills, completes Judaism. Those that are Jews that I know that are Christians are the most joyous people because their Judaism is complete. Don't forget, you Gentiles, I'm one too. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And most of the Jews said, no thanks, that's not what we were expecting, get lost. Because of that, we Gentiles are grafted in a Gentile's a non-Jew, whether you're Japanese, Irish, Italian, whatever you are. Um, Okay, you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Verse 38, I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And you do not, uh, sorry, and you do what you've heard from your father. Okay, contrast. I'm telling you what I've seen in heaven from my father, God, who Abraham, by the way, heard and believed. You, he's the contrast is, you do what you've heard from your father. What's that, you ask? Sin. Hate Jesus. Wait, who is their father? I thought it was Abraham. In the flesh, it's Abraham. He's about to tell them that their father is, remember who's your daddy in the email? Their father is Satan. You say, wow, that's heavy. You mean biologically? No. 
I mean spiritually. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Now there's a slave. Sin is personified there. If you're a slave to sin, sin's the one whipping you. Well, sin's not a personage, but the devil is. The devil wants to get everybody in slavery to sin one way or another. So that's the contrast. And he's going to build on that. Um, you're ready to kill me. You have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen from the father's presence. What I'm telling you is God's truth. And you do what you've heard from your father. And what are they planning to do? Some of them kill him. Okay. He's going to bring all this together. John is as he's writing this gospel. Verse 39. Here's their reply. It's like a debate going back and forth. Abraham is our father. They answered. Jesus replies, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. What did he do? He heard the word and he believed it. When God said, move to Abraham, he moved. They're not willing to budge from where they are. They're so sure they're saved they are the opposite of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus starts with the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that know they're bankrupt spiritually. Those are the ones that are crying out for a savior. The Jews think they're millionaires spiritually. Abraham's, I'm Abraham's kid. I'm in. I don't need you. They're not hungry. They're not thirsty. If you were Abraham's children, he said, then you would do the things Abraham did. There, he's already implying they're not really Abraham's kids. They are descended biologically, but not spiritually because they're not doing what Abraham did. Verse 40, as it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, meaning the father. They want to kill him. Okay, so that's murder, right? Uh, intentional killing of an innocent human being, the definition of murder. Uh, why are you bringing that up? It'll come back in a second. Verse 41, you're doing the things your own father does. And they're thinking, wait, was Abraham a murderer? And he's thinking, you're way off, right? I'm not talking about Abraham. I'm talking about your father, spiritually speaking. The father, by the way, of all who don't believe is Satan, whether they know it or not. You say, I know there's some people that are Satan worshipers. Look, Satan doesn't care if you worship him. As long as you don't worship the true God, you're his, and he'll let you do whatever you want, pretty much, in the sinful world. You don't have to be a Satan worshiper. Um, as it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. Did Abraham want to kill Someone that told them him about God, the answer is no. You are doing the things your own father does. Verse 41. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Okay. Verse 41 is what's called in debating circles an ad hominem attack. Have you ever heard that word before? Ad hominem is, I believe, Latin. I don't think it's Greek. Ad hominem means I'm debating with Les back there about something, and he's clearly winning the debate. 
you know, and I'm losing. And so as a last ditch effort, I start to put him down as a person. I start talking about his character or I don't like his shirt or something, which has nothing to do with what we were. Sorry, Les, he's looking at his shirt. Like, what's wrong with my shirt? And it has nothing to do with what we were debating about, but I'm losing the debate. So I start to put down the person ad hominem against the man. And that's what they're doing here. Some of the Jews have at least heard, supposedly the rumor is this Jesus character was born of a virgin. And although his father was Joseph, legally, his mother was a virgin when she conceived. And that's um, the story that his disciples are telling. They are saying, we're not illegitimate children, implying he is. You were born out of wedlock. You're illegitimate. They're questioning his paternity because the subject, remember, is who's your daddy? Fatherhood, right? He's claiming his father and he's talking about God in heaven. So now they're going to borrow that, put him down with an ad hominem attack. They don't talk about his shirt though, but they just talk about him. We're not illegitimate children. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. Okay. Um, interesting that they would say that. They are so sure that they're right religiously, spiritually, they can't hear him. They can't understand. They don't want to understand. Don't miss the context. Go back to verse 30. Who are these people? Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. These are so-called disciples or followers or believers. If you don't believe me, look at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, they answered, verse 33, this is a dialogue between people that say they're believers, but it's pretty clear they're not. They're, they're self-deluded, right? They're, they're deceived. You're determined to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. You have to ask the question. People that are, there's a bunch of people that are determined to kill Jesus. What the heck did he do that deserves the death penalty, right? He's about to ask them, which of you convicts me of sin? Go ahead, bring it on. What, what accusation do you have against me? And you're going to notice in the next verse, there's nothing, silence, which implies he's right. He's sinless. So they want to kill him. He's done nothing wrong. All he's done is tell them the truth that he heard from God. But you got to love the truth to embrace it, right? And if they, they don't like his truth. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the things your father does, your illegitimate children. Okay, so they say our, our only father is God himself. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, which implies what? It's not. He's not. But if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. So he's saying, you could tell who God's children are because they know God, they understand what God wants, and there's a family resemblance between God the Father and Jesus Christ that he's alluding to here. And so if they love the Father, they would love the Son. You say, well, wait, I know some people that I, I love the guy, but his son I don't like, let's say. That's because the son's different than the father. 
Not so in this case. Like I said, the father and the son, Jesus is going to say in John 10, I and the father are one. Uh, I'm, I loved my dad while he was alive. I could never say we were one. We disagreed on some things. We didn't look the same. God is revealed, John 1, 14 and 18, in Jesus Christ. He that has seen me, Jesus says in John 14, has seen the father. Wow. That's how much unity there is. If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. He doesn't seek his own glory. He seeks the glory of the God who sent him. You know what? Let's take our two minute break and stretch our aging bodies. And I'm going to turn off my screen, but I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we are back, or almost back. Find your seats, those of you that are here. Um, we're going to pick it up where we left off. Um, let's see. So they clearly don't really believe in him, even though they thought they did. As long as he would fit into their theology, they would, they would believe, with him, believe in him, but he certainly uh, doesn't fit in with their theology, so they don't uh, they don't like him. They don't believe in him. Um, let's see. Notice in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm not, uh, I'm now here. If God were your father, you would love me. That statement precludes or leaves out any possibility for this person. Which person? The person, have you heard these people that say, well, um, I love God, but I reject Jesus right? That would be almost all Jews would say, uh, unless they're Messianic Jews, I love God, but I reject Jesus. Jesus says, if you loved God, if God were your father, you'd love me, right? One and the same. There can't be, uh, you can't divide, or if you want the legal term, bifurcate between God the Father and God the Son, because they're absolutely united. If God were your father, you'd love me. I came from God. I'm now here. I didn't come on my own. He sent me. Verse 43. Are you still awake back there? Say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, say amen. Good. Or wave. Most of you have got uh, your screens turned off, which is totally fine, of course. Just hit that stop video or camera button. Okay. 43. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. That's an odd thing. Okay. They're hearing the words. It's not in a foreign language. They're comprehending the words, but they still can't really understand. Okay. That goes back to what we've said for three or four weeks in a row. So I'll mention it again. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Unbelievers are not sick spiritually. They're not damaged and a little dull of hearing spiritually. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ultimately, that's why they can't hear him. Why is my language not clear to you? What's interesting is, hopefully, it's clear to you, right? Because you're a believer. The Holy Spirit is making the word of God come alive for you and for me. They can't understand. They can't respond positively because dead people can't respond positively. Um, most of the commentators said 
it's not only cannot, it's will not. They're also obstinate about the whole thing. They have the parentage issue of we're Abraham's kids. Your theology doesn't fit in with us. They have a lot of pride with that. They've pre they're prejudiced against him and what have you. Okay, so now Jesus is going to just get cut right to the chase here in verse 44. Remember the email? Who's your daddy? You belong to your father, verse 44, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. So in that long verse there, he says the shocking thing to Orthodox Jews who think God is their father and Abraham is their father. And he says, wrong, wrong on both counts. You belong to your father the devil. There are people, even Christians I've met, that don't believe in a personal devil. Well, you know, the Bible talks about the devil and Satan, and it's just a personification for evil. Boy, the Bible has a lot to say about an actual being, a former angel. Um, some say even an archangel called Lucifer, who rebelled because of pride and ego, um, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and became Satan, an evil being. I can assure you, Satan is real, okay? The mistake to make about Satan is to put so much emphasis on him that there's a devil behind every rock, and you cough and you go, <laughs> I rebuke you, Satan, for the demonic cough I just had. Everything's Satan. Too much emphasis on Satan. But the other extreme I just mentioned is the people that go, oh, Satan, uh, he's nothing. Listen, I'm not one of those Christians that believes a Christian can say, I rebuke you, Satan. I don't think it's biblical. I think God can rebuke Satan. In the, in the book of Jude, it talks about the archangel Michael didn't even dare say that. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. The Bible says, put on the full armor of God against Satan, Ephesians 6. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Nowhere do you see Christians, ordinary Christians, saying, I rebuke you, Satan. That's God's job. But you know what? He does it when we resist him, when we ask him to protect us from him. He's speaking to people that think they're believers. Oh, is that a question way in the back? I, she's asking, I'm, I'm going to repeat it for the Zoom people. Can you say in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you? See, I, I don't see that in the Bible either, Nancy. I, I, I know a lot of people say it because you're still in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. I don't see that in the New Testament. I see God, Jesus, God in G Jesus commanding demons, get out of him get, you know, be gone, Satan, in, when he's tempted in the wilderness. Remember all that? I don't see believers having that authority. I think that's why, if, if that's how we're to handle Satan, why is there Ephesians 6, which says, you better put on the full armor of God. And the word stand, stand, stand appears three times. I don't see, that would be a perfect opportunity to say, just rebuke the devil and tell him to get lost. 
stink breath, you know, all the names people call Satan. The truth is, I believe God has the power to do so. I believe because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, that Satan cannot possess us, come inside of us, you know, demon possession. That's going to come up in this chapter shortly. But I believe he can oppress us. And because we're Christians, we have a bullseye on our back. He leaves the people that are getting drunk every night and sleeping around alone for the most part. They're already on his team. They're already his slaves. Why would he bother with them? It's you people, you Christians and you people on Zoom, especially that are his enemy. <laughs> and he, I believe that uh, because of Ephesians 6, we're to put on the full armor of God and um, resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Um, I'll tell you what the, I believe the devil hates. Just start praising God. Just start talking about Jesus. Praise God. Praise Jesus. I thank you for your power, Jesus. When you really mean it, that's like kryptonite for Superman. Satan goes, I'm going to go elsewhere. That's my own belief. I don't see believers um, doing that sort of thing. I'll give you one more answer to that question. I hear televangelists on TV say, Satan, we bind you here today. We bind you in the whole U.S. My question is, did that work? And if it did, how long did it work? 20 minutes? Because I look, I read the news. I see evil things going on. If we could just, if one guy can say that and bind Satan, is there a time limit on it? Is there an area only in this room or just in California or in Madera County? Or I don't see it. I see God binding Satan. The ultimate binding of Satan is when Christ returns, binds him for a thousand years in the, uh, in the abyss. Anyway, let's move on. Good question though. We can talk more about it later if you want. Um, you belong to your father, the devil. I want you to notice he doesn't pull punches here, does he? Somebody that was advising him might say, you know, Jesus, you need to cool the, your father, the devil thing. You're just going to alienate these people. Does he care? Wants to tell him the truth. Why can't you hear me? You belong to your father, the devil. And now he's going to prove it to them. Still in verse 44. And the proof is you want to carry out your father's desire. You say, wait, what's his... Who's their father again? The devil. What's his father's desire? What did he say they want to do earlier? They want to kill him. They want to murder him, right? What about the devil, Jesus? I'm still in 44. He, the devil, their father, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. Ask people in a Bible trivia contest, what's the first murder in the Bible? And most people will say, Cain killed his brother Abel, right? Wrong. The correct answer is there were two murders before that. You say, before Cain and Abel, really? Genesis 3. Satan tempts Adam and Eve with that uh, fruit, remember? And God says to them, don't eat of the fruit of this one tree. You can eat of anything else here you want. Don't eat of the fruit of that one tree. And God says in Genesis 3, the day you eat of it, listen, you will surely what? Die. Was God wrong? Did they eat it? Yes. 
Did they die? Yes. That day? Yes. You say, wait, no, they're still alive. They're talking to God. They're... Listen, if Adam and Eve theoretically did not sin, let's say that Satan said, eat the fruit, and they said, get lost, and they didn't eat it, would they have died? They would have lived forever. Meaning what? That they were alive, listen, physically, heartbeat, brainwaves, and they were also alive spiritually. Okay? The day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Did they die physically? No. But I'll tell you this, the day they ate that fruit, they began to age and decay, and the death process began. It might have been hundreds of years later, but it began that day. Okay, but what are you saying, Joe? I'm saying this. The day they ate of that fruit, they died spiritually, and I'll show you the proof. In Genesis 3, the second they eat that fruit, they know that they're naked, meaning what? That they maybe God clothes himself in light, okay? Maybe they were clothed with light or they had no shame. Suddenly, something has radically changed. I want you to notice they hide vertically from God. They hide horizontally from each other. They hide from God when he walks in the garden looking for them, remember? <clears throat> and he knows where they are. They hide from each other and they suddenly sew together fig leaves and that marriage will never be the same now. They died spiritually. They have to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden shortly after that. Do you remember? It's an amazing story. Um, he was a murderer from the beginning. I'm going to suggest God, Satan, sorry, in a sense, murdered Adam and Eve. Not physically, although he eventually caused their death by tempting them, physical death, but spiritually they died. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was also behind the murder, I'm sure, of Cain killing his brother Abel, but Adam and Eve as well. He was a murderer from the beginning. Look into this. Listen to this. Not holding to the truth. Remember earlier talking about those that are believers hold to the truth. Satan doesn't. He knows the truth, doesn't hold on to it. There is no truth in him. I'm still in verse 44. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Is that amazing? That means if his mouth's moving, he's lying. We say that about politicians sometimes, right? Don't get me started on that. If he's, uh, if, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you remember what God said? Let's go back to our Garden of Eden again. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. Do you remember what Satan said to Eve? Have, have some of this fruit. Eve says, no, we can eat from every other fruit, but we're, if we eat that fruit, we're going to die. Satan says, you will surely not die. That's a lie. He says, God's holding you back. The day you do eat of it, God knows you'll be like him. You'll be like a God. And God's kind of keeping you, trying to keep you down. Are they like gods after that? No, they're much less spiritually, not more, by listening to Satan. So bringing it back to first century Christianity, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire. You're murderers just like your dad is, the devil. He murdered Adam and Eve. Every murder since, every death 
sickness, disease, and pain since can be traced to the Garden of Eden. He's saying, just like your father, you want to carry out your father's desire. You want to murder me. A murderer from the beginning, not only the truth, no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, verse 45, you don't believe me. Which means you, there's a family resemblance. Just like your father, you want to murder. And there's no truth in him. And you don't believe my truth, which is the ultimate truth. Um, you too are liars. Verse 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Now, this is an astounding claim. Any mortal, human, mere mortal like you or me, I would never say this. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? You guys would line up with a list probably, right? Or talk to my wife and kids and my parents if you could. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? What an amazing challenge. There's no answer. All they answer is ad hominem in verse 48. I'm skipping down. Aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? That's ad hominem, putting him down. They don't answer the, here's where your sins are, because there aren't any. Pretty astounding. Jesus Christ had to be the sinless lamb of God to be able to die on the cross and have his sins be, all sins be forgiven for those who believe. Okay, go back to 45. Um, no, 46, sorry. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is answered in verse 44, isn't it? Because they're of his father, the devil, because they can't hear his word, the word, the verse before, because they want to murder him. They're completely deceived. There's no truth in the devil, nor in them. That's why, why they don't believe him. Pretty amazing. Um, yeah, we already, uh, they had abandoned truth for lies. I have in my notes here. Um, okay. Uh, we already talked about that. Um, Mm-hmm, 44. Um, I'm going back a verse or two, if you'll excuse me for doing that. Um, um, look at 44. I skipped something that I shouldn't have. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. You see, is, is that what's in your version? Some of you may have lust or lusts. Do you see that? The end of the first sentence in verse 44. The word for desire is often the word for lust in the Bible. And it is such an interesting Greek word. I want to take a second and tell you about it. There's a word in Greek for desire. Okay. And it's the word thumia, T-H-U-M-I-A. Okay. A desire is something that's okay. I desire to... Um, you know, go for a walk. I desire to eat a sandwich. I desire to take a nap, whatever. Desire, there's nothing necessarily good or bad about it. That's not the word here. The word is, listen, not thumia, epithumia. When epi is the prefix in a Greek word, it means over the top desire. Epi, like something was epic, it's huge. Okay, what's the difference, Joe? Thumia, I'll give you some examples. Thumia. Desire. I desire to work and earn money for my family to support them. God-given desire. Epithumia. 
I desire to be richer than everyone. Greed. You see, it's an over-desire. I desire to eat and drink. Thumia, it's a desire. Epithumia, gluttony. I desire, these are God-given desires to eat, to provide for your family. I'll give you another one. I desire fellowship with other human beings. In fact, I desire human acceptance. I want to be accepted in my community among other people. I'm not an island with no friends and no family and all alone and a hermit. I want to be accepted. Thumia, desire. Epithumia. I want to be so accepted. I'm willing to lie to get your acceptance. I'm willing to sleep around with other women to get illicit sex from people. Epithumia, over desire. All sin is God-given desire taken to extremes. Epithumia. Um, let's see, we already talked about that and that. Okay. Is everybody still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, pretty good. Getting a little tired now, I can tell. Um, he belongs to, uh, he who belongs to God, verse 47, he who belongs to God, hear, hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. No wonder, verse 44, you belong to who? Your father, the devil. By the way, that's the only two possibilities. There's no third possibility that I don't belong to the devil, but I'm also not a Christian or I, I don't belong to God. I'm, I'm my own person. No, you're not. It's the only two. You belong to the devil. You belong to God. You say, how did people, how did the world get in this situation? When you get to heaven, blame Adam and Eve. Ever since they sinned and they're the father and mother of the whole human race. By the way, even evolutionists say there had to have been a first human male and a first human female who had relations and made other little males and females, right? Some sort of a first Adam and Eve. In the Bible, we learned that our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. And ever since then, every human being, yes, those cute little snuggly babies, are born with a sin nature, original sin but the baby's innocent and no, do you have to, you've been around a two or three-year-old. Do you have to teach them how to sin? They kind of know they figure it out. Don't they? And some of you are really not. Oh yeah. Listen, that little baby is born with a sin nature. Now this is a little controversial. I'm not going to sell this real hard, but I'll tell you what some scholars think, because if you're thinking you go now, wait a minute, Jesus was a baby. And yet the Bible teaches Jesus had no sin, no sin nature, no original sin in Jesus. You with me so far? So some theologians, not all, have said, maybe not even most, have said, perhaps, ladies, you're going to love this, by the way, perhaps the original sin is passed on by the man. Because Jesus had a human mom right? I don't, I'm not going to sell this very hard, but it's interesting because he did have a human mother. I'm not saying women aren't sinners. They are. So are men. But Jesus was born without sin. Human mother, Mary, God as his father. Okay. 
I lost you all. Let's move on now, shall we? Um, I don't know. It's interesting. But uh, the reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. Every single being, human being, as I said, is born with a sin nature. That includes you and me, even though we're Christians. What happened to us? God drew us, John 6, 44. John, a God, sorry, called us. God chose us, Ephesians 1, we read it earlier, before the foundation of the world, predestined us to be believers. Do I understand this? No. Do I believe it? Absolutely. That's why you're here today. You, believe it or not, and you on Zoom, I see you there, um, you hear, look at the verse, you hear God's word. He who belongs to God hears what God says. That's not me talking. That's we're reading the Bible, which is God's word or words, right? This isn't that exciting. We're not giving away free prizes or anything. The reason you're here is you belong to God and you have a thirst, a hunger to hear more, learn more, don't you? So do I. I don't even understand it. Why I'm here, the guy that the kid that in school when I was little and the teacher said, Joey, it's your turn to come up to the front of the class and give your report. I would do anything to get out of talking in front of the class. Any, I'll wash the blackboards. I'll do a written report, 20 pages. Please don't make me talk in front of people. Here I am. It's a God thing. Certainly not me. This is the last job I would have picked. Anyway. Those who belong to God hear what God says. The reason you don't hear is you don't belong to God. Conversely, may I say to you, the reason you do hear and the reason you are here is because you do belong to God, whether you know it or not. I don't feel worthy. And yeah, I know none of us are. Get used to it. He loves you anyway. And he's not done with you or me. Verse 48, <clears throat> ad hominem attack number two. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? He just told them, your father's the devil. They counter with, oh, yeah, well, you're demon possessed. By the way, is there any evidence that he's demon possessed? All the stuff you've seen in the Bible about people that are demon possessed that are just out of their mind. And here he is very calmly speaking to them. Why a Samaritan? Okay, who are the Samaritans? bordering a country bordering israel the samaritans were jews who stayed behind when there was a dispersion but they ventured into samaria and they intermarried with pagans so their religion was a mixture of judaism and paganism okay and they didn't go to the temple and the jews racially hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor and hated the Jews. They needed a little critical race theory to help. Just kidding. Anyway, the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Racial, total racism for both. Okay. Wait, didn't we read John 4 earlier, maybe six weeks ago? Where's the woman at the well in where? She's a Samaritan of all people for Jesus to lead to Christ, and she leads her whole village to Christ. It's a Samaritan, meaning what? Jesus doesn't care about that racial stuff. He's there to bring the gospel to the whole world. It's beautiful. Um, aren't we right in saying that you're a half-breed? That's what they were, half-Jewish. A Samaritan and demon-possessed. They're just throwing out ad hominem attacks. Verse 49. 
And I think he says this very calmly. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Isn't that interesting? Just calmly says, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. Okay, that, those last two phrases, it took me four or five readings and a couple of commentaries to figure it out. I'll just tell you, I'm not that I'm the swiftest guy in the room. Okay, what's he saying? I honor my father. The devil, if you read um, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, the reason he fell, it was all about me. I, I. In Isaiah 14, he says, uh, uh, I will ascend to the heavens. I will be like the most high God. I will rule. I, I, I. Jesus has just been accused of being demon possessed. You're just like Satan. Jesus says, I honor my father. I'm not here for my honor. I'm not self-promoting. I'm here to bring glory to someone else. Satan doesn't do that. That's what he's saying. He's going to say it more in the next verse. And you dishonor me. By way of logic, if, I, if Jesus, if I'm Jesus and I say, I honor my father. Okay, you're honoring God the father. That's good. But you dishonor me. Therefore, you're dishonoring the father. That's what he's saying. Look at the next verse. I'm not seeking glory for myself. Satan does. Read Isaiah 14. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it, the glory for Jesus. And he is the judge at that time. On the break, Ken was asking me, is Jesus saying in verse 26 of this chapter that he, can, he has a lot to say to judge them? Remember we talked about that, Ken? And the answer is he could have listed 30 sins they were doing. But he didn't come the first time to judge. He comes in grace, in mercy, in love to offer salvation. He's about to offer it to them. And, and they hate him. It's pretty amazing. God, at this point, is the judge. Eventually, all judgment is given to the Son. When the end of the world comes, Jesus Christ will judge the entire world. Pretty amazing. And what you do with Jesus isn't something. It's everything uh, in that judgment. Um, hmm, um, I'm not seeking glory for myself. There's one who seeks my glory. And he's going to, the most glorifying thing Jesus does is die on that cross and rise from the dead. As bloody and gross as it seems, I've said in the past in this Bible study, the crucifixion of the innocent, perfect, loving human being, Jesus Christ, was easily the worst thing that has ever happened on planet Earth. Yes, I know there's child abuse and there's genocide, and, but to kill God who comes in a body fully loving and, and caring for each person, to kill that holy one is the worst thing that ever happened on planet Earth. And it's the best thing that ever happened on planet Earth. Is that cool or what? It's a paradox, right? Not two doctors. It's a paradox. It's something different. Um, so they accuse him of being demon-possessed. He says, I'm not seeking glory for myself. There's one who seeks it. He's the judge. Verse 51. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
Now you say, now, wait a minute. That's a pretty big promise there, Jesus. Are you sure you don't want to rephrase or rethink that? Is he right? Well, I've known a lot of Christians. My parents were Christians. My grandmother was a Christian. They all died. I'm Dave Colaccio in this church was a dear, dear friend of mine and an elder in this church. And he got COVID and he died in December. He was a Christian. He kept Jesus's word. Verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What, what's the context? Meaning what's around this? What's he been talking about? Physical things or spiritual? Ken went like this, spiritual things. Now listen, Christians do die. Walter Martin used to say the death rate is still one per person. We're all going to make it. Every human being dies of their last sickness or their last injury. There's no exceptions, right? But have you ever been really tired and gotten in bed and fallen asleep and you wake up and you go, oh, it's 8.30. Where did the time go? You were there, but you did not experience that time. Yes, I know you might dream, weird dreams, whatever. The point is, for a Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I think it's very different for an unbeliever. I think it's horrific to tell you the truth. For a believer, dying is graduation. It's glorious. I think that although if you're watching me someday, hopefully long time in a bed and I'm slowly drifting away and I'm dying, I think as sad as that looks, if you love me, it's awesome for me. I think I'm not I think if I could talk, I'd be going, oh no, don't cry for me, Argentina. Remember that song? I, don't cry for me. This is awesome. Death is graduation. Death for a believer is glorious. Look at the verse again. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What about unbelievers? They die physically too. They spiritually, when they're judged, are put into outer darkness, hell, separation from all things holy, from God, from Christ, from the Holy Spirit, from each other. Don't believe the, I'd rather party in hell with all my friends, man. Hell is, listen, it's solitary confinement. It's, there's no party. It's outer darkness. It's horrible. We chuckle about it. There's nothing funny about it. And I shouldn't even joke about it. My point is that that is what the Bible calls the second death. I don't mean annihilation. That's not biblical. Because the same words for heaven, eternal, eternal life, born again, eternal life, that same word eternal in the Greek is used for eternal hell, eternal separation. To, to such a point that it's like a death, even though they will live forever. On that happy note, let's close because we're out of time. Sorry that we had to end there, but we'll pick it up next time. Um, and we'll hear Jesus say an amazing thing. I'm sorry we didn't get to it. The teacher's a little slow in this class. Um, if you have questions or prayer request, you can always email me. Say, just reply to the email you get that invites you to this Bible study. Um, 
do donate to your local local church or Oakhurst Evangelical Free if you can go on the website. Anyway, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Praise God. Almost made it through chapter eight. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you um, are our God and your son isn't just some fallible man who's a sinner and could be lying and could turn on us, could change his mind. He's the eternal God who reflects your beauty and your glory, God. Thank you that you drew us to him and we are saved and death is nothing to a believer. There's no sting to death. It's an absolutely glorious graduation. So we lift up Jesus tonight, like the cross, he was lifted up. We lift him up and give glory to Jesus Christ, the ultimate representation of your being, God. Thank you that this truth really has set us free. We're free not to sin now. Help us not to go back to the chain and the post in the ground. Help us to live our lives with your glory in mind, with obedience to you, Father. We love you. Make us more like Abraham who heard the word and believed it and acted on it. Use us for your glory, God. We thank you for all these truths tonight, and we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. And the rest of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. I'm going to turn the screen off and say goodnight. God bless you.